Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily represent those of any organization, including one generation away. America is free. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise. And freedom is special and rare. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com, going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. In the face of an unidentified threat, the administration has decided to opt for the Winnie the Pooh defense and bury its head in the honey jar. Now, what does this mean for dealing with aerial incursions? What's happening with inflation? And what is the state of the Second Amendment in light of the new ATF ruling? All this and more on today's show. Welcome back to Liberty Nation Radio here on the Radio America Network. I'm your host, Mark Angelides. On today's show, we talk spy balloons, Bidenomics, and guns. What a combination. I'd like to take a special moment to say thank you to our listeners on KXYL 1240 AM and 102.3 FM out in Brownswood, Texas. Thanks for being here. Remember, this show is proudly sponsored by LibertyNation.com, where you can access podcasts, breaking news, analysis, and a range of biting and brilliant shows to whet your appetite for freedom and your fondness for the great American Constitution. With unidentified objects floating across the continental United States and fighter jets scrambling to take them down, there's a lot of unanswered questions and more than a little deflection. Well, to help us navigate precisely what is happening and also what is not, we're joined by Liberty Nation author and former Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense Controller, Mr. Dave Patterson. Welcome back to the show, Dave. Good to have you on. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be with you. So, Dave, uh, you've been providing what I'd, I'd class as rolling coverage for the pages of Liberty Nation on these flying or floating objects. And to me, it seems you've provided some of the most comprehensive analysis that's available on the net. So what's your take as of recording time, these four objects that have so far been encountered? Well, I think you can look at this in a, in a in a kind of in sequence. So when did we know about the balloon? 200 feet high you know, roughly 14 stories, not hard to miss. And and, and two uh, fellows in um, Montana didn't miss it, whereas the uh, entire uh, United States government did. So we first learned that they it, it came into the airspace on the 28th of January. And it was four days later that, uh, that President Biden was briefed on it on the 1st of February. And then they dithered and it went over many of our sensitive uh, military installations like Malmstrom Air Force Base with uh, the uh, ICBM fields. That that, that's the Montana one, right? That's in Montana. That's right, in Montana. Um, <clears throat> and you, then you had uh, also Malmstrom Air Force Base is one of the key communications nodes for our global strike uh, command and control. 
And then it meandered down and looked at Whiteman uh, Air Force Base in Missouri, where we have B-2s, our, again, our global strike capability. And, and finally, you know, four days or later, uh, the president decided to shoot it down over uh, uh, as it coasted out over uh, South Carolina. So we had quite a long time in which this balloon was uh or should have been known to us now, now, lo these many days later, we have the intelligence community that tells us, oh, well, we knew about this balloon when it took off from Hainan Island in China, and we have been tracking it ever since it took off. Oh, that's good to know. You know, that's that's really good to know. Had we known about this uh, a little earlier, it might have been more easily dealt with and you know how sorry to interrupt dave strategically if they knew about it when it came from hainan island which by the way is the go-to holiday destination for uh chinese and expats in china it's very very fancy place um surely there's a big stretch of ocean in which it could have safely been shot down when it was apparent that it was approaching land rather than Uh, waiting until it coasted off the other side at, at south carolina no Well, I I think more importantly, there was plenty of open space over which you could have uh, brought this balloon down safely. And I mean, (laughs) I guess we're, you know, geography challenged in our government that they wouldn't know this. But the the fact is, is that what's kind of disturbing is now we have a rather prominent Washington newspaper that is telling the story of how we knew this was a balloon from Hainan when it took off. And basically they're flacking for global news, the, uh, you know, the communist Chinese or the Chinese Communist Party news outlet, which is what they said. And, you know, well, you know, it's just a new balloon. It got off track. It got into uh, uh, the jet stream. We couldn't control it. Okay, but we've kind of dismissed that as a logical explanation. Okay, and then there were three others, which uh, I haven't seen too many reports describing what they are, but I believe one description is a a hexagonal metallic balloon with strings dangling off it. What what is that? Well, right now we're, we're trying to determine that. Uh, what it looks to me like is that it could easily be some sort of uh, a uh, reconnaissance balloon, but now we're thinking it's more likely, and and this is somewhat comical, that it's a balloon. This is what they've, they've said. It's a balloon that probably came from a used car dealership that uh, was advertising, you know, sales, but there's kind of a, a, a problem with that line of thinking in that how many used cars dealerships do you find in northern alaska and in the yukon and of course those uh th- those used car balloon men and things that they yeah. are they're, they're generate the, the they're generated by air they're not helium-based uh products they're generated by air so once it comes out from the exhaust once it comes out of the plug socket yeah it well in all fairness <laughs> In all fairness, there are some large helium balloons, but very few used car dealerships in uh, northern Alaska and the Yukon. (laughs) Um, But be that as it may, 
there are lots of things that are questionable and that just don't make any sense from the Biden administration, which is unfortunate because we're dealing with two things that I think are very, very uh, important. One is, can we detect balloons that might be uh, a danger to us? And secondly, what is the decision time that this administration uh, has demonstrated? Uh, First, and and let me not ramble on, but ramble on just enough. You know, we we saw in in a number of photographs where the Chinese have uh, demonstrated a a large balloon with a gondola underneath it that carries uh, hypersonic weapons. So if you don't have a decision process that finds these things very quickly, I mean, a hypersonic weapon over the United States gives you very, very little reaction time. And and so these are the kinds of things that I think Americans should be and, and you know, the rest of the, the free world should be concerned about is when you see something, how long does it take you to make a decision? Mm. And it, in these cases, it's been, you know, glacial, not you know, to keep up with the metaphor of the northern tier basis. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems almost excruciating how long the, the process takes. Now, China recently made an announcement the other, uh, saying that this sending of balloons, although they, uh, they haven't claimed ownership of the, the latest three objects, uh, that it's essentially a quid pro quo situation with the U.S. engaged in similar tactics. Now, is, is this correct? Don't we know? Is it deflection? It's deflection. Uh, We don't have, uh, as best you know, as best anybody knows, and and of course the president would be the last to know uh, whether we don't have balloon programs that are reconnaissance uh, have reconnaissance capability. Now, having said that, you know we do have uh, programs like uh, uh, the J Lens balloon that we use for border control for looking for uh, drug runners. Uh, we have used those kinds of balloons in the past, but uh, they're tethered. They don't go anywhere. Mm. And, and so it's not likely that one of those uh, came loose. And we simply don't have that program and, and it's deflection. Okay. And we're talking with Dave Patterson on the national balloon issue. We'll be back with Dave speaking about the unspoken security concerns facing the country after this short break. Don't go anywhere. For your freedom and your liberty, Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. We're back with Dave Patterson, the fount of knowledge on all things Foggy Bottom. Earlier in the show, we discussed the unknown objects visiting American airspace. But now, I want to go a little darker and talk about the uh, the unknown unknowns, if you will. Now, Dave, you wrote a piece on LibertyNation.com that chilled just about everyone who read it. You noted how uh, a small balloon or a similar device to the ones that we've been encountering could just as easily be carrying a small nuclear device or a hypersonic weapon that you mentioned in our last segment. Um, can you fill us in a little on this, please? Yes, I think that that this is something that, that the United States needs to be extremely concerned about. And again, it goes back to detection. These balloons uh, have been shown to carry uh, fairly significant uh, payloads. And we talked about the uh, possibility and the Chinese have demonstrated at least that it can carry 
uh, a, a gondola with uh, hypersonic weapons pointed down. Uh, but it can also carry other things that uh, that are, are of concern. Uh, in, in one of the articles, as you mentioned, uh, small nuclear devices, and they don't have to be very big to generate a fairly uh, dangerous uh, electromagnetic pulse uh, that would take out communications, would take out anything electrical, particularly the grids, which have circuitry boards. So anything that has, you know, transistors, modern circuitry boards uh, is in jeopardy of uh, being affected by EMP. I think uh, everyone wants to know why the authorities aren't spotting these things as soon as they should be. I I read that the U.S. radar system had to be recalibrated in order to detect uh, what was coming in, uh, specifically these balloon or balloon-type objects. Um, but does this mean that the radar system is only set up to look for one type of object at a time? Uh, and if we're busy looking for balloons, could we be missing something more threatening? I mean, it reminds me of the uh, the the SETI system, which is the, the satellite array used to obviously detect alien life um, or signals from obviously outer space. Uh, and the problem is there's all these huge satellites, but because the sky is so vast, they can only really use everything to look at about 1% of the available array. Now, is that a similar situation to the U.S. radar system? Well, it's 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 analogous, but I think it's it's not necessarily similar. Uh, uh, what what I think we're we're faced with is that uh, we have a number of systems. We have uh, ground-based missile systems. We have the, you know, what used to be called uh, uh, Strategic Defense Initiative uh, and uh, anti-missile uh, systems. And they use a very uh, different kinds of radar. They're looking for uh, high altitude, very fast uh, mm-hmm. objects. And uh, then you have the systems that used to be the dew line. It's now called Northern or North Warning System that uh, looks for aircraft and missiles. And that's a that's a very different kind of targeting uh, that the uh, system and the frequency of the radars have to deal with. Uh, and one would think that, well, balloons move, moving slower would be easier to look at, but that doesn't appear to be the case. So it seems to me, Dave, that the folks in defense and at the Pentagon, that they, they're perhaps a little too targeted in their thinking, as in, as you say, they've either been looking for very fast-moving uh, missiles or fairly fast-moving uh, planes, ve- aerial vehicles. Uh, and so they've got this one type of threat in mind. And is that limiting their ability to contemplate, let, let's call it a more unique form of potential warfare? I, I think what it's doing is it's it's focusing their attention on one specific kind of threat while uh, leaving the rest somewhat unattended. And so what we need is a uh, is a broader look at at all kinds of objects that might be coming our way, and having a decision time that uh, reflects a uh, a quick reaction. Whereas we've seen that's that's not been the the case lately. And I think that that those are the the kinds of things that we need to start to to uh, to look at. But much of the problem for the Biden administration is of their own making, and uh, 
as I recall, and uh, when things like this happened in, in the administrations that I was involved with, we immediately got out video. We immediately had our military uh, experts brief every aspect of these kinds of, of events. And that's simply not happening. I mean, the Biden administration could have saved themselves a great deal of grief if they had known about these, and that was true, to get out right away and have uh, one of the experts from NORAD track and explain with video. And every one of these uh, fighters that uh, destroyed these objects and the balloon all have weapon system video. They have to. Yeah. And so that that's not being provided. We assume it exists, but it's not being provided. So essentially, it's it's not letting any light on the situation, letting uh, speculation run rampant. Now, Dave, I, I do have another question for you regarding this timeline that that you were, you were just talking about uh, from the decision to when when a thing is uh, detected to a, the president making the decision. It seems that in case of the Donald Trump administration, that timeline is is roughly three and a half years. How does that work? <laughs> well, you know, that's I mean, th that's where the Biden administration loses all credibility. I mean, it wasn't until this balloon came up that they had the oh, well, but it happened to the uh, Trump administration, too. And the way we know this is because we traced back all of this information that we had that we never bothered to tell anyone. And not even the president, apparently. Not even the president, you know, which is which is troubling in itself. I mean, you have these kind of faceless technicians that choose who they'll tell things of great strategic value in the United States, who they'll tell. Uh, and so literally all of the decision makers in the Trump national security team were not aware or never told because all of them say precisely the same thing. And of course, a lot of them, of them, as you know, have subsequently become detractors of Trump. So they're not, you know, compelled to say nice things or things that support the former president. Yeah, it, it seems to me that uh, we have the Joe Biden situation with four days plus to make a decision. Why do you think the people who inform the chain of command decided that Joe Biden, who, let's be fair, has never come across as one of the more competent people in government should be informed and Donald Trump should not. Well, you know, it's hard to get inside the heads of uh, these folks. I mean, you have to continually remind yourself that all uh, geopolitical and global crises uh, situations have to be seen through the lens of the Cracker Jack response to the Afghan withdrawal. Yeah. And and so, I mean, this is the same group of people, the same mindset that dealt with that so swimmingly. And so it's difficult to get inside their heads because a lot of things they do or say just don't make any sense. It's uh, living in the realms of political spin. Dave Patterson, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Mark. Happy to be with you. Later in the show, we discuss the recent ATF decision on pistol braces. But up next, after this short break, we're back with Andrew Moran talking the political bonfire of the strategic petroleum reserves. Don't go anywhere. Yeah. 
that was free. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com, going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. Once again, it looks like President Joe Biden is ready to sell the family silver, at least in the petroleum form. Also, CPI numbers are out and the latest retail figures are something quite not to be believed. Uh, to discuss all of these topics and more, we're joined by Liberty Nation's resident economics expert, Mr. Andrew Moran. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, now, clearly, President Biden has jettisoned the term strategic from this and decided to rename it all piggy bank. <laughs> yeah, so uh, President Biden and his administration, they recently announced, even though the whole thing was just supposed to be six months, uh, he announced that he's going to sell uh, 26 million barrels from the strategic petroleum reserves. That's the nation's emergency stockpiles that was meant for emergencies, not to support his agenda. All right. And so this this should be around how many barrels of oil uh, at co the congressionally approved limit is I believe that's about 650 million barrels. Right, uh, right. In the strategic preserve reserves, uh, when he took office, it was around 600 million barrels. And now, uh, ever since he started selling off, as you said, the piggy bank, uh, it's, it's right now we're sitting around 370 million. So do the math. He's been wiping out about 40% of the emergency stockpiles. Now, his administration said that they would start buying oil at around $70 a barrel. Now, the problem is that it's going to be challenging to get oil prices down to that level, considering the myriad of factors that are suggesting that it, that that it's very sensitive right now. So oil, they, uh, Russia recently announced that it's slashing about five hundred thousand of barrels uh, from its uh, uh, from its production. OPEC and OPEC Plus, they're they're reducing another what, what about two million barrels. And if there's a recession going on and demand erases, then I'm sure more countries will also slash outputs. So overall, this whole idea of injecting market injecting oil into the markets, as you said, it's not very strategic considering the broader what's going on in the broader petroleum market. And it seems to me, I'm not an expert in this field, but it seems to me that he's selling it uh, at a price that, that's really not doing very much for the consumer at the pump. Um, but at the same time, they're going to be spending tax dollars, which will inevitably lead to more taxation or at least uh, reappropriating tax dollars to try and rebuild this when the oil is going to be, as you say, at an unstable or higher price. Yeah, what's what's interesting about that is, is on two fronts. So the first one is that the White House, I think I mentioned this on your program a few weeks ago, uh, the White House came out with a fact sheet that said uh, uh, removing uh, barrels of oil from the strategic reserves has uh, uh, reduced the price of gasoline by 40 cents. So that's that's not, that's not a lot of savings for the consumer. And the second part is that if you look at the recent CPI numbers, the price of gasoline has gone up 2.4% month over month. So overall, a lot of these, lot of these uh, uh, maneuvers hasn't done a, has, haven't really done a lot to help consumers at the pump, especially if you're in places like California or the West Coast. Well, let's talk about those CPI numbers you mentioned, because uh, just this last week, the, the latest report came out. What were some of the big headline numbers for you? 
Okay, so so the, the 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 two main numbers was that the annual inflation rate only eased to six point four percent down from zero six point five percent, and the market anticipated a six point two reading. The second one was was eye popping was that the month over month increase was zero point five percent up from zero point one percent the previous month. Though those are disappointing numbers because this whole narrative in recent months has been that the U.S. is going through a disinflation uh, process. And then if you could dive deeper into the CPI, as I said before. You're seeing a lot of steadily steady increases, a lot of things that were coming down. So, for example, gasoline, as I said, was up 2.4% month over month. Beef and beef and veal, which has come down considerably, actually rose 2.2%, uh, which I mentioned uh, in a recent C5, talking about that's going to be one of the uh, major factors moving forward in, in, in food inflation will be beef and veal because of supply issues. So, overall, a lot of things that are, are steadily going up again. And uh, the issue is that the service sector inflation has been uh, weighing considerably on inflation uh, because that actually rose 7.6% higher than the overall 6.4% uh, number. So let, let's pass these numbers a little bit. So we hear 6.4 and yes, it's down 0.1 from the, the 6.5, but that's still above what the market's anticipated, mm -hmm. which it creates, a, let, let's call it uh, at least mild market issues. But it, it seems to me that some numbers are down, but the, the numbers that are up are all the important ones. And we're talking food, energy, and shelter. What are those yes. numbers specifically? Yeah, so so the the supermarket prices though, or the food at home category that was up uh, more than eleven percent. Within that category, you see like eggs, eggs up seventy percent year over year from the previous month. Lettuce up twenty percent, uh, bread up fifteen percent, uh, coffee you know nine percent. All these uh, important food items have been have, have risen uh, exponentially on the on the energy front. As I said, gasoline was up, but also if you look at electricity costs, electricity costs up seven percent, utility costs up seven percent. Uh, also seven percent. So a lot of things that people rely on is mm. you know rising considerably. My concern is that you could, I, I mentioned this in my, in my recent article about inflation is that you could see a similar environment as you did in the late eighties, early nineteen nineties. So at, when uh, Paul Volcker was head of the Federal Reserve, he saw that inflation peaked at thirteen percent. So he started cutting the federal fund rate or the benchmark interest rate. But then. After inflation started coming down gradually, it started increasing again, which resulted in, again, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. So perhaps you could see a similar environment of perhaps not the recession, or excuse me, perhaps not a serious financial crisis, but a recession on top of you know peaks and valleys of inflation. I'm sure our listeners know this, but it reminds me of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it seems that the the things that are most impacted are all above that 6.4% number. And I, I think... That that should really be what we look at as as a as a world when we're considering how inflation impacts the average person. Now, uh, we also had this week, Andrew, the retail numbers. Now, I am not familiar with this these at the time of recording, but you seem quite uh, animated about them. Care to fill us in? Yeah, I woke up this morning. I saw three percent. I went, "Oh my god, retail sales!" But yeah, so, so the he does that sales, every day, yeah. listeners. By the way, regardless. But uh, yeah, specifically, why this time, Andrew? Well, uh, so the re the latest retail sales data actually came in at three percent, up from negative one point one percent in the previous month. And a lot of economists had expected one point eight percent. Now, this was this was considerable, considering how you had because the last few months, retail sales have either fallen or just uh, risen steadily. Now. Sorry, Andrew, I, I, just to interrupt you quickly, what does this figure actually represent? 
uh, retail trade, uh, consumers buying at department stores, gasoline stations, apparel okay. stores, things like that. Uh, but I, th- I tend to believe that this was just a one-off because after the Christmas season, you have all the liquidation going on. And, and if you look at the retail sales data from the Census Bureau, most of the retail sales that occurred or heavily occurred was about was in department stores because that figure was actually up 20% within the CB report. So I think that's just a one-off. Perhaps it's going to normalize in, 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 the, in the coming months or perhaps, again, once again, go to go in the downward trend. But that liquidation, I mean, that, that, was, that, that really contributed to the higher retail sales. And, and, and also, if you look at the other metrics, which perhaps supports my supposition if you look at retail sales x auto or x gasoline that actually only rose about a little more than two percent okay so it was the january sales to blame right Yes, exactly. And I think that also this was an important metric because perhaps it would uh, would lend credence to idea that the U.S. is going to avoid a recession or perhaps it lends support to the idea that the U.S. is going to go through a rolling recession. So, yeah, I think this was uh, quite, quite an important uh, retail sales report. And one final question for you, Andrew. What's happening for mortgages at the moment? Are we uh, approaching another big short or something else? Well, it's been, it's been, the U.S. real estate market has been interesting because it, it seems to have bottomed in December. You're seeing a lot of new home sales, pending home sales actually increase in a recent week, suggesting that the market's rebounding. But then a recent report came out from the Mortgage Bankers Association and actually showed that mortgage applications fell more than 7% in the week ending February 8th, I believe. And actually, the 30-year mortgage rate went up to nearly 6.4%. So this U.S. housing market, it, it, it's still technically in a recession because a lot of the, you know, Dismal data over the last 12 months, but this is good. This is a uh, really interesting to watch if it's rebounding or if it's still in recession mode. So we're back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs again: shelter, food, energy. It's all uh, it's all up in the air under Bidenomics. Andrew Moran, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we'll be right back after this short break discussing how the recent ATF decision impacts lawmaking in America. Don't go anywhere. freedom and your liberty liberty nation with mark angelides with a mass of happenings through the courts of america and a new contentious effort from the atf to impose regulations on law-abiding gun owners it's high time to re-examine the state of the second amendment in the wake of the supreme court decision on bruin versus national rifle and pistol association and who better to guide us through that than liberty nation's legal affairs editor host of the excellent uprising podcast and man about town Mr. Scott DiCosenza, Esquire. Welcome back to the show, Scott. Always a pleasure, Mark. So, Scott, uh, I I think our audience is fairly familiar with what's been happening at the ATF. Uh, But if you could give us a brief review and then tell us the latest happening, uh, because you're writing an article at the moment which uh, implies that ATF uh, officials may have to cancel their vacation. Yes. Well, uh, Joe Biden's ATF, and it is important, I think, to kind of bring it home to the administration. It's not like this is some government functionaries, you know, doing what they want on their own. This is an administration effort to frustrate gun uh, ownership and transfer and purchase. Uh, They basically created a rule uh, that said that anybody who had a certain type of firearm accessory had to register that like it was a machine gun which means a hyper-regulatory environment for this item rather than the kind of normal regulatory environment that any handgun may undergo. The Congressional Research Service says this will affect between 10 and 40 million of these devices in, in public hands. So uh, presumably between 10 and 40 million individuals, Americans. Well, 
you got to have a couple double purchasers within that sure. within that mix. But probably most people probably don't have three of these things, and uh, they have until uh, until the end of May to to comply with this regulatory regime or suffer the consequences, which which are becoming a, a federal felon. And uh, we now have a, a host of uh, groups that are suing uh, the ATF in various jurisdictions uh, to reverse this rule. So let's talk about a few of these groups. Uh, I think probably the most notable one is a group of uh, 25 attorneys general. And I hope I got the S on the correct word yeah, in that. The, the plural possessive, <laughs> always a favorite. Okay, so what's, what's their argument here that they're applying to the courts for? Well, that suit that you're referring to... Uh, was filed in, uh, I believe, uh, North Dakota federal court. And so the, the, some of this, uh, the, the kind of deeper discussion about this is where they filed, because that may have a, the reason why we discuss that is because the chances of success may be greater. Mm. Um, and all the cases that we're discussing, they're Republican appointed judges. Uh, and I think it was a uh, Trump appointee who's in that North Dakota case. Uh, and that suit was filed by SB Tactical, I believe, Uh uh, which is a pistol brace manufacturer. And it was joined by almost all the Republican attorneys general uh, states. So I think it's 25. Uh, Texas, by the way, we'll we'll discuss that in a second. They went with uh, a different suit. Um, and that case was also uh, now being funded by the NRA. So that's the NRA and all the Republican attorneys general. And the arguments in their case are, uh, and, and in many of these cases, Probably, well, it's fair to say all the cases, there there are two main arguments. One is that the ATF is engaged in impermissible lawmaking with their proposed rule. And the other is, of course, that it violates the Second Amendment, especially in light of the recent Bruin decision from the Supreme Court. Let's dig a little bit into this, uh, Scott. You say that essentially the ATF is creating law from 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 whole cloth, really, because... Yeah, so- how does that work? We we kind of assume that when, when uh, a federal agency sets a, a rule, then th- there would there would need to be some kind of congressional agreement <laughs> with that so, to right? make it yeah. a law, right? But what they're doing here is, I, I guess it's what uh, a lot of people accuse uh, judges of doing, legislating from the bench. And this is legislating from uh, the federal, basically the, the, the federal uh bureaucracy. This happens quite a bit. Uh, it's oftentimes not discussed or or revealed because it's not in terribly contentious areas. Uh, but in minor areas, it happens all the time. And, and what happens is the, the Congress says the federal government uh, is to regulate, for instance, long arms, rifles and shotguns differently than handguns. Well, what makes those things a handgun or a shotgun or a rifle? We may all have our our understanding about what those things are, but articulating them into laws that are then going to be used to prosecute people for violating them, they're going to be challenged and they, you know, they have to be carefully constructed, as you might imagine. So that's what this whole controversy entails. For people who aren't in the gun culture, this is a firearm accessory that allows people to uh, basically create a, a, a shorter package of a firearm that fires a cartridge that is typically associated with a rifle uh, caliber, uh, two two three or 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 well, that's the most popular one. That's the the native caliber for the AR fifteen, and so it became a wildly popular accessory. And uh, it's sort of you know the latest and greatest of any kind of uh, phrase you know or sweeping kind of trend. 
Um, and that's what's happened with this. That's it, This has only been around for like 10 years. And Mark, what happened was the people who manufactured this brace sent letters to the ATF and said, is it okay to make this? Does it constitute a basically a short barreled rifle? And the ATF said no. And they're the only ones who can say, because they're the ones who determine under the rulemaking authority what it means to be a rifle or a handgun. So Congress needs to get in there and 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 really I, I see you want to come in. I'm sorry. I do. So, <laughs> my, my, go, my rambling on too long. No, no, that's great. That, that's great information. What, what I want to, to kind of get a grip on here is uh, you, you mentioned that it's coming in in South Dakota. It's being filed. And that's specifically that's because... That's the NRA suit. That's the yeah. NRA suit. Because there's a, there's a higher likelihood of success. Now, what does a success look like in this case? Is it the ATF has to repeal the new ruling that would... I don't know if this is a real word, felonize between 10 and 40 million Americans. Would they have to repeal so that? Or would- what success would look like is that a federal judge or uh, in that instance, I think it might be a magistrate judge who the, the case is currently assigned to. Uh, in any case, that they issue a stay, that they say this ruling uh, is likely to be overturned at, at a trial and so therefore we're going to implement a bar that prohibits the government from implementing this rule. Full stop. And then uh, people who own these devices don't have to worry about anything in, you know, in the intermediate time. And then there'll be a a, a more lengthy case that's presented in court with witnesses, a real trial over the issue. And then a ruling that uh, indeed they were right, meaning they, the court that granted the stay in the first place was right, that this does violate either the ATF's authority or the Second Amendment or both. And then that decision from the district court is affirmed at the circuit court level. That would be really the, the complete. And if you want to go one step further, that they appeal to the Supreme Court and the Supreme, Supreme Court, court yeah. either declines to take the appeal or takes it and then affirms it. That's what victory looks like, whether that's for the NRA case, whether that's for the ATF case, whether that's for the Gun Owners of America case, or that's for the Second Amendment Foundation cases, which are the three big, big ones on the board uh, currently, and there's there's more I'm sure that I don't know of, and probably some more that will be filed uh, between now and May 31st. Now, again, Scott, we we often end up coming back to this because it, it seems that law in America, and that's really what our talking liberty section segments are are often about. Law uh, to to really have a clear and bright line ruling that you you may or may not get from the Supreme Court. It, it seems to me that this is a a question beyond the scope of uh, pistol braces, the, the ATF. It's who has the authority to make something a crime in the United States. Now, yes. we say that this is obviously taking, appears to be taking place with the ATF, but the EPA has also uh, been involved in this as well. And it, it seems to me that they're isn't or maybe there is uh, some kind of bright line ruling at the very highest court or courts in the land that says no federal agency anything outside of congress has right. the ability to so felonize or even what misdemeanor you're discussing is, is called the delegation delegation doctrine right and can congress delegate its lawmaking authority to federal agencies and there's a great tension in there typically uh Conservatives and libertarians are saying absolutely not. It's not okay for them. Uh, there's a very good reason why Congress has lawmaking authority and the executive does not, and the, and that the courts do not. 
Uh, now, typically on on the Democrat and, and the lefty side of things, they are much more interested in lawmaking through the federal agencies. It gives them, you know, they they're they're I mean, let's be honest, they're relatively speaking, they're captured by the left, these these large agencies. Right. And so if they have lawmaking authority, then they can do through agency action what they could never do, uh, you know, through the political process of, uh, uh, you know, of legislating in the Congress. Okay, Scott DeCasenza, thank you ever so much. Thanks, Mark. And that's almost it for this edition of Liberty Nation Radio here on the Radio America Network. I'd like to thank our guests, Dave Patterson, Andrew Moran, and Scott D. Casenza. And of course, my appreciation to you, the listeners, for taking the time to tune in. And my final thought for this week, uh, I just want to take a moment to consider something. Uh, a government that refuses to act. It refuses to keep its citizens informed of unidentified threats. And one that, parallel with this, is overseeing the financial destruction of the middle class. Now, what kind of government is that? And perhaps a more important question might be, in whose interest is such a government operating? Something to ponder there, I think. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.